from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There's no word like your word. Your word is perfect. It's alive. And so we pray that your living word this morning would be at work in our hearts and souls, that the things that we consider from your word this morning, your spirit would use them to transform us. Might you be pleased, Father. Might this morning of worship continue now as we worship you through your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're taking these three weeks and we're stepping out of our study in James and we're looking at three different testimonies surrounding the birth and the arrival of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked out of earlier in chapter 1 of Luke, uh, Mary's testimony, Mary the mother of Jesus. And now this morning, from later here in chapter 1, we are looking at the testimony of Zechariah. Zechariah uh, is the father of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's uh, a couple of three months out in front of Jesus in terms of his birth and arrival. And yet, and yet the two are, in a sense, a bit of a packaged deal. And so the things that Zechariah says uh, about the arrival of Jesus and John the Baptist are, are coupled together. And what he testifies to us about is that in the arrival of Jesus in particular, is now the arrival of the salvation that God is providing to his people, to all who this morning are looking to and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Two things I want to note quickly from uh, this passage that we've just read. I want us to see something of the backward look or glance of Zechariah's testimony, and, and then we'll pivot and we'll spend maybe a little bit more time uh, at the uh, forward or preview aspects of Zechariah's testimony. Well, as we begin reading in verse 67, um, Zechariah, the first thing out of his mouth is that he blesses or praises the Lord. Blessed be the, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He, he'll pick up that motion of visiting again in verse 78. The, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. 
Zechariah is very aware that something very special is unfolding. It's, it's nothing less than the very visitation of God himself upon this earth. Now, Zechariah has been mute for some time, ever since the angel appeared to him and explained to him that he and his wife, Elizabeth, were going to have a child. Uh, they were childless, and they were way past what we would think of as the, as the childbearing years. And so all of that information from the angel was confusing to John the Baptist. And he, and he sort of does a little pushback as to, like, I'm not quite sure you, you got the wrong, you got the right guy. And, 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 and in response to his pushback, the angel mutes him. Mutes him until John is born. And when John is born and, and they're having this discussion, uh, what's the baby's name? Uh, Zechariah sends a, a nonverbal message that his name is to be John, as per instructions from the angel. And, and after that, the Lord opens John's mouth again. And, and uh, some of the first words uh, opens Zechariah's mouth again. Some of the first words from Zechariah are now these words that we have recorded to, uh, for, for us. Zacharias is, Zechariah is blessing the Lord for the visitation, for, for connected to the arrival of Jesus and John the Baptist is the redemption and the, and the visitation of God himself for his people. He says in the second part of or in the first part of verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. With the arrival of Jesus and John the Baptist, God has if you would flexed his muscle in providing salvation. And that's really what the imagery of a horn is. The horn of salvation is really the the power and the strength that brings about the salvation. You remember last week we touched on um, some of the qualities or character traits that, that Mary testifies to concerning the arrival of Jesus. And uh, I mentioned that there were three of them that Mary mentioned, although I never did get to the third one. I don't know if you noticed that or not. But, uh, but in particular, we got to the first two, that, that with the arrival of Jesus, we see something of the might of God, he, he who is mighty, we see something of the mercy of God. And, and uh, even as we've read Zechariah's testimony this morning, Zechariah alludes to these same similar qualities and traits of what God is doing now through the arrival of his son Jesus. He is showing his might to save. He's raising up the horn or the power and strength to bring about salvation. And in so doing, he is providing mercy to his people um, and, and yet the third thing that I, that I alluded to that never got to, really, is now uh, probably even more unpacked here in Zechariah's testimony. The third thing that Mary alludes to was the faithfulness of God. That Mary reaches back and alludes to the promises that God had made to Abraham. And that now uh, Zechariah takes that same notion of promises made to Abraham he specifically mentions Abraham, but he expands that. He says, 
more about that. And this is a part of Zechariah's backward look. So in other words, what Zechariah is explaining to us is that what God is about to do through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, the arrival of John the Baptist, he's simply going to do what he's been promising that he was going to do since the beginning. Look at verse 69 again. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. In other words, what, what God is about to do in Jesus is connected to Israel's greatest king, King David, in particular to the promise that God had made to King David, that David would have a, a, a king, a son on the throne who would reign forever. And, and since then, all that God had promised to King David is, not, is about to go uh, live before us with the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 72, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant that God has been making promises. And these promises consist of the great mercy that God will give to his people. And now with the arrival of John the Baptist and Jesus, we see something of the fulfillment and the culmination, at least in its initial installments, of the mercy that God is going to show to his people as per his promises. In verse 73, it says, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. And so, and that's really the part that Mary alludes to last week, but, but now he's mentioned David and the covenants and and uh, our fathers, and now Father Abraham, Israel's, Israel's father, Israel's progenitor, if you would. Uh, those, those promises made to him are now coming to fruition. It's like everything that has been said about what God's promises pertain to in terms of the merciful redemption and rescue of his people is now coming to a head in the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Zechariah looks back, he looks back and marvels, praises God for his covenantal faithfulness. With the arrival of Jesus, what should be stamped upon our hearts and souls is that our God is faithful to all of his promises. But the second thing I want to look at, I want to spend a little bit more time on that. So that was Zechariah's, the, the backward glance aspect of his testimony. And now let's consider the forward look of his testimony. Zechariah not only looks back at the faithfulness of God, but he now looks ahead with the arrival of John the Baptist and in just a few months now, the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is testifying with praise in his mouth and in his heart. He is testifying to what God will accomplish in and through Jesus, as well as his own son, John the Baptist, who is the preparer, the forerunner of what Jesus will accomplish. First place I want you to lay your eyes on what Jesus will accomplish is look at verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. When Jesus, with the coming of Jesus, 
and with the successful completion of what Jesus will do in his life, in his death, through his resurrection, the first thing that Jesus will do is he will rescue his people from their enemies. Who are these people who are our enemies? Or might it be better just just leave it blank, blank and say, who are the enemies that we need to be rescued from? Now, what will be played out as Jesus begins his ministry and he begins to uh, indicate that he is the one who is the promised Messiah, the, the anointed Son of God, and, and uh, immediately people begin to assume uh, that when Jesus talks about rescue and salvation and deliverance, they think that he immediately means that he will rescue them from their political enemies. That he will immediately overthrow the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire and free them politically. They, they, they think that perhaps even that, that, that means that Jesus will come and uh, rescue the people of God from the, the elite Jewish religious cartel. That's the assumption that many would read into that in Jesus' own time, even when we, he begins his ministry. And it's a lot, a lot of, I think, what you and I struggle with, even today. The anticipation of the Messiah was so filled with the hope that this son of David would come and be that immediate earthly king who would crush all other political rivals, all other oppressive rulers, and establish an earthly kingdom in which the Son of God would reign from the throne of David forever and ever. I think what we saw last week from Mary's testimony is that eventually that is where we're going. There will be a great and grand reset on this earth. There will be a horrendous flip. The arrogant, the powerful will be brought low. The lowly, the poor will be lifted up. God will reset all things economically, politically, etc., 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 in his time. And yet the immediate enemies, I would suggest to you, that Jesus will overthrow have great pertinence for how you and I ought to see ourselves as those who name the name of Jesus and therefore how we ought to live. The initial wave of Jesus' enemy rescuing work will apply to forces that are even greater than political oppressors. The scriptures define uh, this horrendous cackle of enemies that we have. The world system, that which is opposed to God and all of its institutional structures and arrangements. The flesh, that is the residual remnants of our old nature uh, with inordinate desires and loves. The, the, the devil, coupled with that 
uh, the enemies that we have of, of sin, its guilt and its condemning presence, death and the law. The, the, these, these sort of enemies, not, not political oppressors, but spiritual oppressors are what our Lord will instantly and immediately overthrow and rescue us for, from in the aftermath of his finished work on the cross. These enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil, sin, death, the law, these are what um, had bound our hearts and souls in spiritual slavery and oppression. These are the things that we have already been set free from in Christ Jesus. I say that to say, if you're here this morning and you've never turned and embraced, trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're not free. You're not a free person. You are bound by your own lustly sinful desires. You are bound by the whims and the, and the, 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 the wishes of this world system. You are, you are held captive to the devil to do his bidding. You are not a free man or woman. You're not a free boy or girl. You are captive spiritually. But on the other hand, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are trusting in Christ, while there certainly is a new heaven and a new heavens and a new earth that is coming that will reset everything, in the meantime, already because of the finished work of Christ, there is nothing outside of ourselves. There is no one that is not us that enslaves us at this moment in our relationship to the Lord. We have been freed in Christ Jesus so that we would obediently serve him. We'll say more about that in a, in a second. But for now, we're just lingering on. We have been freed. We have been set free. We have been rescued from our enemies, our captors, our oppressors. Now, sometimes we think, look, if this world would just straighten itself up, if God would just straighten this world up, then I would get my act together and, and I could live straight. That's not how it's currently arranged. If you're waiting for this world to get its act together before you attempt to get your act together, you do not understand that already the Lord has rescued you and I from that which is holding us captive. Because ultimately what is holding us captive is not a, a political issue. It is a spiritual issue. I would press that a little bit further. We get ourselves all out of sorts, and rightly so, because it breaks our heart. But, but Congress might legislatively destroy marriage and the family, perpetuating great harm. But that does not keep you and I from entering into the covenant of marriage and loving our spouse and seeking to raise a godly offspring. There is nothing that Washington can do that is going to keep you in bondage to keep you from serving obediently 
the Lord God who rescues us. You've got to buy that. You can't wait until the world gets sorted out before you understand what your mission is in terms of how you and I are to live. You and I have to understand that Jesus has already rescued us from our enemies, those that wish to harm us and hate us and oppose us and oppress us and hold us captive. And so it's almost like when he says there in uh, the second, uh, in, 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 in verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies, that we're like, it can't mean that. So he repeats it in verse 74. Look at verse 74. That being delivered from the hand of our enemies, we might serve him with fear. So he says twice, you have, you, when Jesus comes and when Jesus pulls off what he is down here to, to, to accomplish, then the, the immediate aftermath of that is that your heart and your soul has now already been set free. Which brings me then to the second part of verse 74. That, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Jesus has come to rescue us from our en enemies, to deliver us from our oppressors and our captors, our spiritual oppressors, our spiritual captors. But what's the end game of that? What, what is the purpose of being uh, freed from our spiritual oppression? What's the end game? Second part of verse 74 that we might serve him without fear. In other words, Christmas is really about what, who or what you are going to serve, who or what you and I are going to serve for the rest of the year. Christmas is about a much bigger and... Um, a much longer experience than what you and I could do just in this short little season or, or just over this next weekend or that, that sort of thing. There are huge implications for how you and I live out the remaining days of our lives because of Christmas, because of the arrival of Christ, because of the work that he did, because of the, the, the finished work that he pulled off. The end game is that he releases us from our captors so that we are now free to serve him. Then he, then he clarifies that, presses that a little bit more in verse 75. We are free to serve him, and here's something of the, of the particulars or the nature the flavor of our service to him, that we might serve him in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Now, you come to expect that when you come to church, you're going to hear these fancy religious words like that, holiness, righteousness. Those may not be words that pop into your brain waves during the week. I mean, after all, you got a lot of practical stuff to get done. I mean, you, you still have to go buy my gift and wrap it. I mean, so, but in the midst of all, you are doing that, right? Already done? Good answer. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've got it yet, though. But anyway, um, but, but in the midst of, of living our life out with all of its busyness and all of its craziness, we are, we are being confronted here. We are being reminded of how we are to actually function as humans. 
In other words, holiness and righteousness are, are not these rarefied religious terms that, you know, only like the religious fanatics use that kind of terminology. And I ain't one of those religious fanatics. And so I have no idea what notions of holiness and righteousness uh, you know, play out and pertain to me and my life in a practical way. I got stuff I got to get done. But actually, actually, terms like holiness and righteousness are really meant to be just basic, ordinary, even mundane terms that were originally meant to describe just normal human existence. Now, of course, there ain't, ain't nothing normal at the moment in terms of human existence, uh, in terms of the character traits of holiness and righteousness, because at the, at the moment, the, the universe is still operating some facsimile of rebellion against God, seeking to live without the Lord. But at this current moment, the, the, the current climate of the world is actually abnormal. You and I, and this is, this is beautiful, you and I have been made in the image of a holy and righteous God. We were made in the image of a holy and righteous God to reflect his holiness and his righteousness in just the everyday, ordinary, mundane activities of our lives. We were made, for instance, the term holiness, we were made, at least one way of considering the, that term, we were made to display a life of virtue and moral character. Now, that doesn't feel normal, does it? That's because this world currently is abnormal, and it's attempting to redefine normalcy. But, but, but normal functioning humanity, the way we were made to function um, by God is that we were made to be people who are virtuous, who are flooded with a heart of moral character. We were made to be truthful and to be upright and to be moral and to be, and, and, and to be honest uh, and and, and, and we were made to display those traits and qualities uh, in, in our lives so that we were made not only be holy, but we were made to display righteousness, that, that we were made to act in uh, righteous, in ways of righteousness and ways of fairness toward other people. That, that, that's why God put Adam and Eve on this planet, to reflect his nature and character. That Adam and Eve would be virtuous in and of themselves and they would be righteous before each other. That would be, that would be the normative pattern of what would characterize life on this planet. And yet, when they hatched the great rebellion, then the very purpose for which they were made to display the holiness and righteousness of God was it wasn't completely erased, but it was effaced. 
It didn't completely go away, but it's now been greatly tarnished and dampened. But you know what? What, 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 John, what John's father, what Zacharias is telling us is that with the arrival of Jesus and John the Baptist, but with the arrival of Jesus in particular and the work that Jesus will do, uh, he has come. Christmas has unfolded, but Jesus has come to give us back our humanity. That we might once again begin acting like humans. That, that we might live in such a way that we live a life of holiness or virtue, that we live a life of righteousness or treating each other justly and fairly. Or at this present moment, the great difficulty with humanity is we don't act like humans. We have let the instincts of, of a beast control our appetites and, uh, and paint our view of what a normal life looks like. I don't know if you've noticed it, though, but the, the more we act like beasts, the, the more empty our souls become and the more dissatisfying our hearts are. Why? Because... Inside of us, that ache continues to communicate to us that you and I have not lived the way that God has made us to live. We have not lived in holiness and righteousness. We have lived as though we have lost our humanity, and yet Jesus comes. He comes to show us what true humanity consists of. He lives a life of holiness and righteousness. But in doing what he has done, he's come to give us back our humanity. To help us recapture what it looks like. To just live normal, ordinary, even mundane lives. But to do that in a way that walks in holiness and righteousness. The Apostle Paul picks up on that, those same two terms. And in so doing, the Apostle Paul stresses that, that, that an essential aspect that a person truly does live in right relationship with Jesus is that we begin to renew our hearts and lives. We begin to toss away anything that's not connected with virtue and righteousness, and we begin to cultivate those qualities and those traits, those deeds, those desires, those dispositions that truly reflect virtue and uh, righteousness. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 20 to 24. Here in the context, he's contrasting how we used to live our lives, but, but now how we are to live our lives now that we belong to Jesus. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught uh, in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, uh, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on your new self, created after the likeness of God in, here's the terms, true righteousness and holiness. 
Jesus has come so that ordinary people like you and I might be human again. We might strip away that which is not holy in our lives, that which is not righteous in our lives, and to put on and to cultivate and to begin practicing and walking in that which is holy and righteous. You see, Christmas is about being able to act human. One more thing, though. How do we get there? Verse 77 is the last verse that I'll particularly have us lay our eyes on. Obviously, I'm not covering every aspect of this testimony, uh, but we will just, we'll, we'll kind of begin to wrap it up with what he says in verse 77. This is speaking now about some of what John the Baptist would do in the preparatory role of getting people ready for the arrival of Jesus. And he says... Uh, that John the Baptist would give the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So he is linking here that this salvation, this, this work of God by which he rescues us from our enemies, this work of God by which he restores our humanity in us in a way that displays holiness and righteousness, that, that, that this will come in, in, in through the instrumentation, through the agency of a salvation that pardons us, a salvation that gives us forgiveness of sins. You see, because here's the rub here. This is why forgiveness is so precious. Do you know what is preventing us from truly being human? We've inherited a sin problem from our ancestors, Adam and Eve, what prevents us from being human is our sin and the guilt of our sin and the condemnation before God because of our sin. And so before we can ever really have a conversation about, oh boy, I better get my act together. Joe said, I got I to gotta live in holiness and righteousness, whatever that is. Uh, how, do I, how do I get there? Well, there's no way on your own you can get there. You, you, you can't. I can't, we can't, maybe I didn't say you, you think well, I'm ex- 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 excluding myself, but we can't get there on our own. There's no way you can take unholy, unrighteous Joe and he himself change himself so that he becomes holy and righteous Joe. But that's why there had to be a Christmas. That's why Jesus had to come. God in the flesh had to come and do for us what we are probably on one level, uninterested in doing for ourselves, but, but on the other level, incapable of doing uh, for ourselves. Uh, to bring about a kind of transformation so that we begin to be human again. We can't be human as long as our sin corrupts us. It's guilt. It's curse. It's condemnation. But while I can't look at you and say, I got this, we celebrate Christmas because we point to Jesus and say, he got this. He came, and, and he became man, the God-man, and he lived in a way that reflected true humanity. He lived in perfect, flawless holiness 
and righteousness. And yet he wound up on the cross, a symbol of the very curse and condemnation of God. But there at the cross, as he is experiencing the, the, the hell of curse and condemnation, he is doing that in our place as our substitute. He who is holy and righteous, if you would, in our place, becomes unholy and unrighteous and bears the punishment of that unholiness and unrighteousness. Though it wasn't his own, he took ours and bore up his own self in his own body in our place. So that, so that any and all who even this morning would turn from ourselves and turn to Jesus, we receive all of the blessings and benefits of what God has done in Christ by his spirit. We receive pardon, full and final and forever pardon. And out of that pardon, then that, that, that removes the one barrier, i.e. our sin, that removes the one barrier that has prevented God from indwelling us with his presence so that we now can become a people who walk in holiness and righteousness. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you have done for us in your son, Jesus. Thank you for the provision and salvation that he provides. Thank you for the restoration of our humanity that he gifts to us. Thank you for removing that which destroyed our humanity, our sin. So, Father, may you be pleased in these moments, even as we sing in response to the Lord. May you kindly continue the work of changing us so that we each and every day look more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ in all holiness and righteousness. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing this song. Mm -hmm.